Again, know it is my profound pleasure and honor to welcome Dr. Tony Campolo to the pulpit of Christ Church. He said in the Sunday school hour that the length of the introduction usually is in direct opposite to the importance of the speaker. So a long introduction denotes a not so terribly important person. Friends, Dr. Campolo. A joy to be with you. My wife is here, as was indicated, but you don't know who she is, so I'm going to ask her to stand. That's my wife. I love, I love children's sermons. Uh, one of my friends talked about doing a children's sermon and had all the boys and girls up front and said, boys and girls, what's this big has a long furry tail and climbs trees. Dead silence. One kid said, I know I'm supposed to say Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> One of the verses of scripture that confused me for years came out of the 14th chapter of John, the 12th verse. It's a red letter, it's a red letter verse. Words of Jesus. Here are the words. Whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me, the work that I do, he shall do. And if that wasn't enough, he adds this. And greater works than these shall ye do, because I go unto my Father. What an incredible verse. Listen to what he's saying. You're going to do what I do. And because I go to the Father, you'll be able to do even greater works than I have done. I mean, I believe in miracles. I mean, I've seen them on television. I'm always suspicious of those healers on television who are bald. You know, I mean, Pastor, I mean, the first thing we would ask to do. But I believe in miracles. Most of us know people who have been miraculously healed. The, were healed in ways that doctors could not explain. But to match Jesus, to do what Jesus did, walk on water, make the blind to see, the lame to walk, to raise up the dead, come on now. And he says, you will not only do what I do, you'll be able to do greater things than I have done. Of course, he wasn't talking about miracles. He was talking about something more important than the miracles. I mean, there aren't things that are more important than the miracles. You say, I've been healed of cancer. Is there something greater than that? Yes. You may be healed of cancer or this or that or another disease, but sooner or later, you're going to die. You are going to die. The miracles are only signs of, of a time when sickness shall be no more and where death will be abolished. But none of the miracles had any lasting significance. I mean, except for his own resurrection, none of the miracles had any lasting significance. He raised up Lazarus from the dead. What happened to Lazarus? He died. 
The first miracle that Jesus performed demonstrated that he didn't make a big deal out of miracles. It was at a feast, a wedding feast. And they were running out of wine. Mary goes over to Jesus. Get the picture? Can't you just picture this? Uh, Jesus standing there, and the Bible says he has never performed a miracle up to this point. he's, He's never performed a miracle. And she goes over and nudges him. Do something. They're running out of wine. Do something. You never have lived up to your potential, you know. (laughs) You think you're the only one that had a mother like that. Jesus says, what have I to do with thee, woman? Whoa. The next time your mother is nagging you, young person, teenager, the next time your mother is driving you up the wall, answer your mother as Jesus would. Say to your mother, What have I to do with thee, woman? It'll go over real big, I guarantee you. It'll go. He looks around and he sees certain things. He sees a bride who's distraught. This was to be the greatest day of her life. And and here they're running out of wine in the ancient Jewish world. To have a feast fall apart like this feast was falling apart would be a disgrace for the rest of your life. The father's walking up and down the floor, wringing his hands, uh, crying out, saying, I thought I had enough wine. I mortgaged the house. I took all the money out of the bank, but I thought I bought enough wine, but this rabbi from Nazareth showed up with his disciples, and they've been guzzling all afternoon. That's probably what happened. And Jesus calls for vessels to be brought forth filled with water. And he prays, and the water is turned into wine. Now, here's the important thing. He says to those who witness what happened, take the wine to the master of the feast, but don't tell him where you got it. You say, wait a minute. You just performed the miracle. I mean, you could get a real thing going here. You could really draw a crowd. You could, I mean, you could really build a movement around this sort of thing. Don't tell anybody. Go through the scriptures. You'll find it over and over again. And Jesus performs miracles and then says to people, don't, don't spread the word. Don't, don't go and tell anybody about this. Uh, go, to the, go to the temple. Thank God, but keep your mouth shut. Why? Because Jesus did not want to confuse us. I mean, there are those who make miracles the essence of the faith. As though this is what is really important about the ministry of Jesus. The, the miracles. In reality, there was something more important than miracles. The love that he came to demonstrate to the world. The love that he wanted to have spread abroad in this planet. I mean, think about it. Think about the fact that Jesus came to express his love. And, and that's more important than miracles. You say, where do you get off making that judgment? It's not my judgment. The Apostle Paul says the same thing, does he not? 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which we read at every wedding. To my Pentecostal friends, I say, it's wonderful that you can pray in tongues. But you can pray, you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels if you don't have love. It profiteth nothing. You say, but I have a gift of prophecy. 
I have great insights into Scripture. I understand the mysteries of eternity. If you don't have love, you're just a sounding press and a tinkling symbol. Well, what about this? What if I have enough faith that I can not only heal people, but I can actually remove mountains and move them from one place to another? Jesus says, don't you count that? And Paul writes, you can have enough faith to remove mountains. You don't have love. You're nothing. You're nothing. Love is what it's all about. And Jesus came into the world to make of us a people who live out his love, a people who live out his love in time and history. Now, when I say love, especially when I'm on a college campus, the kids all get, you know, all hot and bothered. They, they kind of look at each other as they're sitting there, you know, how they do, looking at each other like dying cows in a hailstorm, you know. I mean, Because they have a tendency to confuse romance with love. There's nothing wrong with romance, right? I mean, it's a great emotion. It's a powerful emotion. It gets you married. It just doesn't last. I know what you're going to say. Not if you marry the right one. There's the great American myth, the right one. And you ask your mother, Mom, how will I know when I've met the right one. And every mother in America answers exactly the same. When you meet the right one, yeah, that clarifies everything, doesn't it? That really clarifies everything. It doesn't end there. Three weeks before the wedding, she looks at you and says, are you? It's too late. The invitations are out. The presents are coming in. You're dead meat. I don't know what it's like to come down the aisle. I do know what it's like to be up front waiting. You look up the aisle, and you look around, and everybody you ever knew is out there. And you look up the aisle, and this woman dressed in white, who on this occasion you hardly recognize, <laughs> and she's coming at you, and she's wearing this demonic grin on her face. And you're saying, God, what am I doing here? And even if you are an agnostic, at that moment, God will speak to you. You will hear a voice from heaven saying, too late, sucker. <laughs> all that a wedding does, all that a wedding does is that it creates the possibility for a marriage. Marriage is what you create when the wedding is over. And if all you've got is romance, your marriage is going to be in trouble in short order because marriage is realism, it's not romanticism. You have to develop something deeper. You have to, in fact, tap into the energy of God. You've got to let God come into you the God who is love wants to love through you, wants to make you, as St. Francis once said, into an instrument of his love. To love. More important than anything else. I was in New Mexico speaking at a conference, and I was then at the airport, waiting for a little commuter plane to pick me up and fly me to Denver. Uh, 
small little airport, little tiny terminal. There were about eight of us, maybe nine in this little terminal, waiting for the airplane to come. Among us was this woman who was just sitting there, head down, very morose, and she looked a bit angry. I went over and sat next to her, and I determined that I was going to get her to smile and possibly to laugh. I worked on her and worked on her, and I did get her to laugh. And once she started laughing, the other guys in the terminal gathered around her, and we all started on her, and she laughed harder and harder and harder, and finally she says, stop, please stop, I'm an old lady, you have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> the little airplane landed, her friend got off the plane, she came into the terminal, the dear old lady got up and hugged her and bade us goodbye and left. I'm waiting for them to call us to go through the metal detector when I looked out the glass doors of this tiny little terminal, and I saw her car coming back up the drive. This elderly woman got up and she shuffled back into the terminal and came up to me and said, Mister, you couldn't possibly have known this, but it was two years ago today that my husband of 64 years died. You didn't know that. It was two years ago today. And I didn't realize it until I was on my way home that today was the first day since then that I've been able to laugh. And I, I had to come back and say thank you. And Jesus said, the work that I do ye shall do, and greater works than these shall ye do, because I go unto my Father. You say, wait a minute, Campolo, you're not going to tell us that getting an old lady to laugh after two years of sadness can be compared to Jesus walking on water? Come on now. If Jesus had the choice between getting a broken-hearted old lady to laugh and walking on water, which do you think he would say is the greater work? I, I was in Haiti. I got out of the car. It was actually a van. I had gone down to check on my workers down there in the mission organization that I hit up. I'm walking across the sidewalk, and I got intercepted by three girls. I call them girls because the oldest was 17. The one in the middle said, Mister, for $10, you can have me all night long. I was stunned. I looked at the second one, and I said, Do I get you for $10? She said, Yes. I said to the third one, And you? She tried to look sexy, but it's hard to look sexy when you're 17. Your mother and father are dead, and you got a brother and sister to feed, and you have no way of earning money except to sell your body. I said, you're in luck. I got $30. I'm in room 210. I want to hire all three of you for the night, but I don't want you up there for a half hour. I rushed up to the room. I got on the phone. I called down to the concierge desk. I said, I want every Walt Disney video you've got in stock, every one of them. How many you got? He said, eight, all of them. I called down to the restaurant. I said, uh, do you still make banana splits? I'll pay you extra, but I want extra whipped cream, extra ice cream. I want nuts. I want cherries. I want, I want 
I want four of them. <laughs> and the girls came, and the videos came, and the banana splits came, and we sat there at the edge of the bed and watched, we, we watched Disney till about one o'clock in the morning. And that's when the last of them fell asleep across the bed. And as I sat there in this stuffed chair, looking at their little bodies strewn across the bed, I thought to myself, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. I didn't know enough Creole to explain the way to salvation, the way for deliverance. Nothing's changed, I kept saying to myself. Nothing's changed. And then, I don't know whether it was me talking to myself or whether it was God speaking to me, but the words that came to me were these. But for one night, for one night you let them be little girls again. For one night you gave them back their childhood. For one night you let them be kids. You did what you could. There it is, people. I'm not asking you to remove mountains or walk on water. I am asking you to do what you could. When our associate pastor talked about supporting a child in a third world country, it's a dollar and a quarter a day. You can afford that. You could do that. Are you doing what you could for those who are in need? Here's a very simple thing you could do. I have a friend who's a associate pastor in, in Bel Air, California, at the Bel Air Presbyterian Church. Every Christmas season, she goes down to Nordstrom's department store, an upscale store, but in Bel Air, California, a very upscale store. She loves to go into the store, even though she can't afford to buy anything there because everything is so expensive. Because the ambience at Christmas is so wonderful. The, the, the decorations are beautiful. And there's live music on every floor. She's up on the top floor where the most expensive dresses are for sale. She's looking around, taking in the scene, enjoying it all when the elevator door is open. Out steps a bag lady. She's holding at her side a, a gym bag, probably all the possessions in the world that she had were in that bag, dirty and filthy, and she just stood there and looked around. Claire said, I fully expected that a couple of security guards would come and usher her out. She didn't belong on the top floor of Nordstrom's where the least expensive dress was $1,000. Instead, a stately saleswoman came over and said, can I help you, madam? Claire was amazed that such a dignified person should be treating this bag lady with such respect. Can I help you, madam? The woman said, yes, I want a dress. What kind of dress? Anything in mind? Yes, I want a party dress. You've come to the right place. We have the finest party dresses in California. C come with me. And they went over to this rack of very expensive dresses. And for about 10 to 15 minutes, the saleswoman talked to this woman with such a gentle way and, and, and talked about which 
color dress would go best with her eyes and her hair color. And finally she said, uh, Madam, uh, here are two dresses that I think would be perfect for you. Let's go into the dressing room and, and try them on. So they go into the dressing room, the two of them. Claire said, I hustled to the dressing room right next to it and leaned against the wall. I wanted to hear this. And they talked some more. And finally the expected happened. The woman said, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to buy a dress today. The saleswoman said, oh, that's, that's all right, madam. But, but here's my card. Should you come back to Nordstrom's, please ask for me. I would consider it such a privilege to wait on you again. The bag lady left, and Claire waited until the saleswoman came out with the dresses over her arm. She went up to her to ask what that was all about. Why spend a half hour on a bag lady that wasn't going to buy anything? She didn't have to ask a thing. The woman was wearing a little pin that said, W-W-J-D, what would Jesus do? And Jesus said, the work that I do, ye shall do, and greater works than these shall ye do if I go unto my Father. You're making such a big deal out of a, a saleswoman treating a bag lady with dignity and respect. Exactly. Not with Sounds loud, cymbals loud clashing, nor the beat of drums. But the old hymn goes, with simple acts of kindness, the heavenly kingdom comes. I, uh, I'll tell you about a teacher named Jean Thompson. It was the first day of school, and she said what teachers always say the first day of school. Boys and girls, I love you all the same. Sometimes teachers lie. They don't love everybody the same. Sometimes they have favorites, and, and sometimes they find that there are some children they just don't like. Teddy Stollard was a child you would not like. He was singularly unattractive. He sat slouched in his seat. He never paid attention. He never bathed often enough to get rid of an unpleasant odor. His hair was always must, and his clothes were disheveled, and when she spoke to him, he always answered in monosyllables, yeah, no. When she marked Teddy's papers, she always got a perverse delight out of putting X's next to the wrong answers. And when she put the F at the top of the paper, she always did it with a flare, vroom, vroom, vroom. And she should have known better. Teachers have records. She had records. First grade. Teddy is a good boy. He shows promise in work and attitude, but poor home situation. Second grade. Teddy is a good student, but he is too serious for a second grader. His mother is terminally ill. His father shows no interest. Third grade. Teddy is becoming withdrawn and detached from the other children. His mother died this year. He needs help. She had records she should have known. Christmas came. The children brought their presents to the teacher and piled them on the desk. They were all in brightly colored paper, except for Teddy's present. His was wrapped in brown paper and held together with scotch tape. But to tell the truth, she was surprised he even brought a present. 
When she tore open the paper, out fell a rhinestone bracelet with most of the stones missing and a bottle of cheap perfume that was almost empty. The other children began to snicker at the, at the presents, but she had enough sense to snap on the beat-up bracelet. Taking some perfume out of the almost empty bottle, she put it on her wrist, held it up, and said to the children, isn't it lovely? Isn't it lovely? Taking the cue from the teacher, the children all agreed. At the end of the day, when all the other children had left, Teddy lingered behind. He came over to the desk and he said softly, Miss Thompson, Miss Thompson, all day today, you smelled just like my mother used to smell. That's her bracelet you're wearing, and it looks very nice on you. I'm really glad you like my presence. And he left. And she got down on her knees and buried her head in the chair and cried and cried and cried and asked God to forgive her. And the next day when the students came into that class, they had a new teacher. It was still Jean Thompson, but a new Jean Thompson. A Jean Thompson who had surrendered to the Lord and allowed the Spirit of God to invade her and transform her. A Jean Thompson who had become, through the grace of God, an instrument of God's love. She reached out to the children who were having difficulty, especially to little Teddy. She encouraged. She tutored. She helped. By the end of the school year, Teddy had caught up with a lot of children. He was even ahead of some. The Stollard family moved away, and she didn't hear from Teddy for a long time. And then one day, out of nowhere, came a note. Dear Miss Thompson, I'm graduating from high school. I wanted you to be the first to know. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, another note. Dear Miss Thompson, I'm graduating on Saturday. The university has not been easy. I'm second in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, another note. Dear Ms. Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore J. Stollard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm going to be married the 27th of July to be exact, I want you to come. I want you to sit where my mother would have sat. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Love, Teddy Stollard. And she went, and she sat where the mother would have sat. She deserved to be there. She had become an instrument of God's love. She'd become an instrument of God's love. How does that happen? How does one become filled with the presence of God? Jesus said, if I leave you and I go to my Father, I will come again as the Spirit, and I will be in you. I will be in you, and the work that I do ye shall do. And greater works than these shall ye do, because I go unto my Father. Let me just point out something. 
when the eternal Christ, as was described in the second chapter of Philippians today, left the right hand of the Father and invaded human history, he took on a human body, a physical body, the same Christ who created the universe. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. That same Christ was incarnated in the body of a man named Jesus. It took the disciples quite a while to figure it out. To figure out that this man was more than a man, that the eternal Christ was in him. I know who you are, said Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It dawns on him in Caesarea Philippi. But when Christ was incarnated in the body of Jesus, he could only face-to-face -face love one person at a time. If he was looking into the face of John, he wasn't looking into the face of Mary. If he was looking into the face of Mary, he wasn't looking into the face of Philip. Looking into the face of Philip, he wasn't looking into the face of Martha. He could only face-to-face -face enter into a loving, intensive relationship with one person at a time. But consider this. Looks like there are about 500 of you out there. Suppose, just suppose, that the same Christ that was in the body of Jesus and loved people through the body of Jesus, suppose that same Christ was in every one of you, all 500 of you. If that same Christ, which could only love one person at a time when he was incarnated in Jesus. Suppose that same Christ was in all 500 of you. How many people could he love at any given moment? Obviously, 500. Don't you get it? Is 500 greater than one? Of course it is. That's why he looks at this congregation today and said, if you will allow me to invade your life, if you will allow me to be a presence within you, not just believe in me, not just believe in what I did on the cross 2,000 years ago, but if you will just open yourself up and surrender and invite me to be a living presence in your life, you will become an instrument of my love. And if 500 people in this Presbyterian church were to become instruments of his love, the same Christ that was in Jesus would be able to love 500 people in Canton at any given moment. You say, wait a minute, Camp Polo. I'm quite willing to admit that the eternal Christ was in the body of Jesus. But you're not telling us that we are the body of Christ. Well, how many times does the preacher have to read that from the scripture? How many times does he have to say, the church is the body of Christ? You say, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. And the 8th chapter of Romans says this, that the same spirit that was in Christ Jesus and raised him from the dead, that same spirit will be in your mortal bodies. You say, well, that's great. I believe in Jesus, but you talked about something more than that. You talked about Jesus being a living presence in your life. How, how does that happen? Well, there are many ways it happens. For my Pentecostal friends, it happens by somehow getting slain in the Spirit, and that's wonderful. It didn't work for me. But I learned from my Catholic friends that there are other ways in which the Spirit of Christ enters into people. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that. Jesus said, you can't reduce it to any one methodology. The Spirit what? The Spirit bloweth where it listeth. You cannot tell from whence it comes and where it goes 
You cannot say, here's how you get the Holy Spirit, or here's how you get the Holy Spirit, but I can only share with you how I experience the Holy Spirit. I get up in the morning before I have to, and I center down on Jesus. I drive everything else out of my mind, and I focus on Jesus, and I wait. It takes me at least 15 to 20 minutes to become inwardly still, because the minute I wake up, my head starts spinning with all the things that I have to do that day. I have to push them aside. As C.S. Lewis said, I've got to push aside those animals and make room for God create sacred space where there's nothing else but Jesus. When I, when I was a kid in a Baptist church, they, uh, we had Sunday evening services. The Presbyterians never did. We were much more spiritual than you people. And every Sunday night, my mother made me go. And I didn't want to be there. I'd come into church because I wanted to, I'm from West Philadelphia, hi man, I'm cool. I want to be cool. And cool people don't go to Sunday evening church. And I, so I'd sit there kind of half cool. And the pastor would always say, does anybody have a favorite hymn? You always know the minister has not prepared the service. <laughs> when he says, does anybody have a favorite? He acts like he's doing you a favor. He's, he, he didn't even take the time to pick out anything from the hymn book. Mrs. Kirkpatrick on the right-hand side would always say the same thing. 119 in the Tabernacle Hymnal. We had two hymnals. I hated that song. I'm a tough kid. I'm trying to, you survive in West Philadelphia by being tough. Not that I was tough, but I knew how to act tough. And we'd have to sing 119 in the Tabernacle Hymnal. You know it. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. I thought I was going to puke. The second verse was even worse. He speaks, and the sound of his voice is so sweet. The birds, the little birds, hush their singing. I hated that song. But that's because I was 16 years old. The older I get, the older I get, the more I love to sing 119 in the Tabernacle Hymnal. You got to get some years under your belt before you understand what that hymn is all about. You got to get some years behind you before you understand those words where it comes to the chorus singing, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. The intimacy with God. When was the last time you went off by yourself? You have lovely liturgy here. My wife loves this church's liturgy. She told me that. Having said that, you have these wonderful prayers. It's all part of the liturgy, and you read them. And Jesus says, those words have their rewards. They have their rewards. But if you really want to pray, what does he say in the red letters? Go into a closet. Shut the door. Leave the world out there someplace. Center down on Jesus. Focus on Christ. 
Be still and know that I am God. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. When was the last time you went off by yourself, drove everything else out of your mind, and only focused on Jesus? Jesus, 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 saying it over and over again because there's something about that name. It drives back the dark spirits and creates the sacred space. It takes me about 15 to 20 minutes to become still. Be still, says the scripture, and know that I am God. Be still. Be still. And I lie there in bed, and I say nothing and I hear nothing. But I surrender and wait for the Spirit to flow into me. And when the Spirit is in you, you will begin to live out what the fifth chapter of Galatians says are the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, endurance, self-control, but at the top of the list is love. You can't generate that. You can't oomph it up from the bottom of your soul. You, you've got to let the Christ who is with the Father to come into you as his spirit and fill you and live out life through you. So that's the call this morning. You come here as believers in Jesus, and that will do you a lot of good, because whoever believes is saved. If you believe in what he did on the cross for you, how he took the punishment for your sins, how he atoned for your shirt, that's all wonderful. That gives you eternal life. But there is a hunger for something more, isn't there? There's a hunger for something deeper. There's, a, there's an awareness that as much as you believe you haven't got it and you don't even know what it is, it is the Holy Spirit. Silently now, he'll come into you. I want you to ask yourself right now, have I come to that point where I need to open myself up in a still place, in a quiet place, and perhaps even here and now, and say, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Pray with me.